Hello, and welcome to News Underground. Uh, my name is Anna. I am a news correspondent. And if you don't know, News Underground is a show where we talk about uh, lots of different topics, talk to a lot of different cool people about a lot of different cool things. Um, we are live from 6 to 7 p.m. every Monday and every Wednesday. So if you are interested, then you can tune in uh, on those days. And today I am talking to uh, Teresa Rowe, who is a coordinator for the Office of Institutional Equity and Compliance. And yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so we are going to talk today about the red zone. Um, and if you are or have been a freshman at CU, you may have heard this like during bystander training or you may have seen a poster about it in the dorms, um, but I kind of just want to go a little more in depth about the red zone and really what that is and what that entails and just sort of what it looks like. Um, so we're going to start very basic. Um, Teresa, could you just talk a little bit about what the red zone is? Yeah, so the red zone is a term that people have coined to talk specifically about serious incidents of injury as well as issues around sexual assault at the start of college life. So some people talk about the red zone as kind of the first six weeks of school. We have data that really indicate that the red zone is much longer than that, and it's more complicated and nuanced than that. But it's that sense that the transition to college is a significant transition for people. And in the early weeks, as students arrive and adjust to campus, that the social environment is, uh, is challenging for new students to adjust to, navigate, and that a lot of high-risk drinking really happens as well in that time as people are coming onto campus in the early weeks where academics aren't as intense and people haven't settled into school and everyone's focused on having fun, meeting people, making friends. And so it's lots of positive things are happening in that transition, but it also then creates this vulnerability for things like injury and sexual assault. So it's a it's an area to it's a time to educate communities about, educate our students about, parents, people coming from high school into college, all those kinds of things. And I think it is a it's a under-recognized transition and, and that support is pretty significant. So it's something that we pay a lot of attention to at the university. And um, when I hear about the red zone, I hear a lot about uh, female students, like sorority girls and things like that, uh, people like that who come more, more commonly fall victim to um, harassment within those first six over six weeks. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, I kind of want to talk a little bit about other groups, like specifically in that in that sense, like do male students also have their sort of red zone at the beginning of the year? Sure. Well, the, really, it's important to recognize that the red zone is something that is more intense for first-year students. But there's also a lot of data saying that the red zone isn't just that six weeks, really the first 12 weeks of school. But then also there's national research that says the first three semesters and sometimes the first four semesters are the highest risk times for serious kinds of problems for students. So serious impacts, um, people being um, really 
targeted in terms of that time frame. So it is our first year students are overrepresented in that kind of red zone, but also second year students returning for their first semester back living off campus. That's another pretty significant transition. You also see it in the spring semester as if students are starting in that spring semester, you see it less for transfer students. So when it comes to issues, particularly of sexual assault, you know, it, which is a particular topic that our office addresses, uh, that is one piece of it. But there are also other concerns around, you know, serious physical injury, um, other types of harms, harms from, um, you know, high risk drinking or alcohol toxicity, those kinds of things. And we talk about students with this as they arrive on campus, sort of help them think about why is this a, a time where more of these problems might happen on campus? And students will always say, well, you know, it's our first real taste of freedom and we're focused on having fun, having a good time, experimenting. People don't know their limits around alcohol. People are doing things that maybe they've never done before. And so while that, um, you know, is sort of uh, particularly for our society an expectation of what college is going to be like, um, people oftentimes don't talk about some of the harms. So while it does impact certain populations more than others, like first-year students and, and some of our second-year students, and then women more than men, we do see that red zone across all identities um, in terms of race, sexual orientation, gender identity, um, in-state students, out-of-state students. So many of the ways we look at our data for our campus, um, we may have differences in some of those rates, but it is impacting people, um, particularly in that first year, pretty significantly. We have data for our campus. In 2015, we did a campus-wide sexual misconduct study and we will continue to do that research on our campus overall just really looking at are things improving um, you know generally these issues are long-standing deep-rooted social problems so they don't change overnight but in terms of looking at are our efforts making a difference are we really staying the same place where we are but in that 2015 data about 18 percent of our first year students had had experienced sexual assault in the first 12 weeks of school. So they were taking that survey in from mid-October through Thanksgiving break and we had about a 50, little bit over a 50% response rate from our first year students. So our data was really robust and representative. And then looking at that, breaking it down that fall semester, we know that s about 71% of all sexual assault that happens on our campus occurs in the fall semester. So that 12 weeks is a really concerning high-risk time um, for men, for women, for, um, yes, there are populations that might have higher rates or higher impacts, or um, particularly women more than men, but men are affected as well. And it all does cluster kind of in that, in that zone, in that transition time. Yeah, and then um, kind of going off of that as far as like different rates for different people. Uh -huh. Obviously, it's important to recognize those rates in every population. Yeah. Um, but one group that I was uh, curious about specifically was uh, like LGBTQ students. Yeah. Um, I know that actually in that sexual misconduct survey, um, lesbians, bisexual women um, had experienced higher rates overall uh -huh. of sexual assault. Uh -huh. um, so does that, I assume that does include like 
the red zone or does i mean do sure the lgbt populations at least at cu um showing up in that, that yeah have yeah. you seen an increase of risk among that population yes very much so so when we look at our data overall and we look at our general overall rates on campus so if we just look at sort of the more you know binary category of women that our overall rate is around a little over 27 percent when we break that down and we look at women who identify as heterosexual straight students that number looks about the same it's 27 right around that percentage rate when we look at women who identify um, as you know non-straight any kind of other sexual orientation in terms of um, lesbian bisexual um, pansexual fluid those those categories we see that rate go up to 30 percent when we break that down further that both for men and women that's true for men as well so our rate for men who identify as straight is around 5%. But when we look at men um, identifying in terms of gay, bisexual, pansexual, various categories, we generally look at those together because it's a bigger population then. So it gives us a little bit more robust information. We have small numbers, and if we combine all of that, we can sort of look at that overall category. For straight men, it's 5%. It jumps up to 12% for um, LGBTQ identified folks. So we see that change both for women identified, male identified in those categories. Um, and then we have sort of gender identity mixed in with that. Um, and, you know, it's complex to kind of look at all that data. But we do see rates go up for both. So our highest risk, and this is, this is also confirmed in national research. The um, CDC does some work. There's also a national um, college victimization study. And so we've had data indicating for some time that that's true across the board, that when you really look at in terms of LGBTQ um, and sexual orientation, diverse categories of sexual orientation, that those numbers um, are often a little higher. And for bisexual women and bisexual men, um, those rates are the highest. And so I, that's a, it's an important thing to understand and an important number to know that it is, you know, they're not, people aren't engaging in any kind of different kinds of behaviors. Oftentimes perpetrators and perpetrators' ideas about people um, put them more at risk of being targeted for sexual assault. So um, it's not that people necessarily are having a different social experience. I mean, of course, everyone's having their unique social experience on campus, but in terms of who is targeted by perpetrators, a lot of that are, are negative attitudes about people and attitudes about people's own autonomy and decision-making um, and perpetrators just really stepping over that. And so that high-risk category um, is a concern that people then don't layer on um, negative social attitudes that that's higher for um, reasons that the you know bisexual people are engaging in some kind of riskier behavior that's absolutely not true it's really in terms of the perpetrator's mind um, really targeting people that they feel like um, they have negative attitudes about or they feel like they don't have to worry about what that person wants or their own sexual decision-making and, and autonomy, they're just stepping right over that. Um, so any kind of marginalized identity can make people more vulnerable to crimes like sexual assault. 
And um, yeah, I think just knowing what the red zone is uh, is important, but I think also knowing about those nuances is important. Um, but I'm I'm curious as to like CU Boulder freshmen, for example, mm-hmm. like how much they really know about the red zone, how much they're taught. Yeah. Um, so and I know that the main place where people would learn about it is bystander training. Sure. Uh, at the yeah. beginning of freshman year, yeah. they have a little thing about the red zone, and you know. Um, but I was wondering if you if you believe that freshmen do know enough about the red zone, just about what it is, but also maybe about sort of different nuances that might also be useful to them. Yeah. Well, we do, you know, we talk about the red zone, aspects of the red zone in our bystander training. So we do have um, one hour with all incoming students. (laughs) We train about 8,000 students in a week time in terms of as they're coming onto campus. And that is not ideal. You know, um, one of the big challenges that we have is particularly closing the gap between high school and coming to college. You know, oftentimes we talk with students about, you know, how many people got really comprehensive sexual health education in high school where they talked about consent and they talked about some of these things and really got good information and had some support around sexual decision making the complexities around some of these issues and you know like five people raise their hands and so it's a huge it's a huge deficit in our society overall and so then you have students coming onto campus our students do have a over the summer as they approach coming to campus they have an online course that they have to take they have a couple of different online one around alcohol and then one around our university policies helping people understand what conduct is prohibited at the university. And it's not rocket science to know that things like sexual assault, discrimination, harassment are not, is conduct that is not allowed at our university campus. So, but people, making sure people understand what constitutes sexual assault, that's a big issue that we see in our research as well. We have to, if we ask people, have you ever been sexually assaulted? Most people, and data out there, you can see that like 2% of people will say, yes, I've been sexually assaulted. When you break it down and say, this is what constitutes sexual assault. This is what non-consent means. Here are tactics that people would use to um, create a situation and make an encounter, a sexual encounter, non-consensual. And then here are the range of behaviors that are considered sexual assault. Then we have data that say, you know, 27% of our undergraduates say they've been sexually assaulted. So we know that there's there are lots of issues we're trying to educate students about. Um, these are not issues that students are super psyched to talk about. They are uncomfortable, difficult topics as well. So that kind of transition in summer, they're getting an online course and then they're arriving on campus. The first few days of school getting this bystander education, um, that's, not, that's not perfect and that's not ideal. And um, it's a lot of information to take in. It's challenging to have just one hour, you know, that have that ongoing conversation. So we, you know, the university as a whole, our office is responsible for addressing some of these issues, but so is, um, you know, residence hall staff. And they're talking about these in the residence halls and there's messaging in the residence halls. So some of it is repeated information, but it, you know, it's kind of that dose over time and different opportunities to kind of take more in. And it would be useful to have more opportunities to revisit these concepts. And then when you have such a cluster of problems right as people are arriving on campus, 
um, it's hard to get ahead of that. You know, it's like, welcome to campus. First day, we're going to talk about the red zone. And people are like, I'm just here to have a good time. So um, it's not an ideal opportunity to educate incoming college students. So we continue to work to have more education for students ongoing, particularly the first three semesters, those kind of broader high-risk semesters. But also thinking about our K through 12 process and in high school, closing that gap as well, having more information for seniors going to college about some of these concepts as well. So, you know, kind of overall in education and as a society, we have a long way to go to really get in front of these kinds of social problems. And unfortunately, they're often not problems that you can just do a little education about and people will be like, oh, I didn't know sexual assault. That was sexual. Now I, I won't do that or um, it doesn't work that way. So you have to do other kinds of things to really build community, make connections. There's lots of evidence that particularly that vulnerability as students arrive on campus is that they don't have good social connections, strong social connections. And we do bystander because we know that also the the willingness to help people out is a little bit lower when there's not that sense of community and social connections. So we're trying to build that community, build those social connections um, in the residence halls, in the RAP programs, all of those communities, and giving people some education. Building that a little bit more robustly as people arrive on campus could help us start to reduce some of those problems, but it's hard to get in front of it. Yeah, and um yeah, with freshmen, I, I totally understand why the red zone is a thing. There are just so many factors that yeah. go into it. Um, you mentioned earlier, though, about second-year students, mm -hmm. that the red zone is also, a, I guess, a phenomenon that happens with uh, sophomores. Right. And I was curious about why, if you have any speculations or if there's any data on why that may be. Sure. Well, a lot of it is kind of some of that similar speculation around the transition. You know, people have not necessarily totally nailed down, um, and there's a lot of research, particularly in the alcohol arena, as well as sex assault arena, looking at um, social environments where alcohol is present, um, are, you know, some of our highest risk environments overall. Um, and that's because we have a lot of negative social messages about and negative social attitudes about um, people who are drinking and particularly women who are drinking and so that lends itself to the problem as well we we know that kind of that sense of research tells us that people who aren't well buffered by friends in drinking environments where they really have a strong commitment to not leave each other not get separated really stick together throughout the whole evening um, that when people don't have that strong social connection and those kinds of commitments and friends who will really kind of look out for them, that it does leave them vulnerable. And perpetrators in particular are looking for people that they can access and people getting left by friends or being alone at parties and being new in an environment um, creates a lot of opportunity for perpetrators to um, capitalize on. And so it's part of that, um, that, that social web that falls apart that allows for harm to happen. Um, it doesn't always happen because you have to have a bad actor present, right? So sometimes things fall apart and nothing bad happens because th there's no bad actors. But particularly in these social environments where then people are paying attention to people who are vulnerable, people who have drank too much, people who have been left behind or alone and they don't have friends to look out for them. So we know that's true in our first year students and then as those social connections and then people 
make decisions about new roommates and living off campus and they're living in an environment that's even one notch up from an unsupervised environment, you know, not even in a residence hall or off campus for the first time, living in uh, uh, even a new sense of freedom, that that transition is enough of a transition again to create some of those loose connections, um, impacts the social fabric of the environment, and then creates a vulnerabilities again. So anytime we have transitions in life, um, transitions make people vulnerable. We know that in older populations as well. Um, we have a, particularly when it comes to sexual assault and other harms, we do have high risk population in late high school age, early college, and not just people who go to college, but college age. So people who don't go to college and are just out working in the world as well. Um, similar kinds of rates for people slightly higher than college students. Um, so we know that that time of life is a significant issue, but also that kind of trend, those transitional points also create that kind of vulnerability that perpetrators um, use, unfortunately, to their advantage. Um, yeah, so when people are, are in these transitional periods and they're more um, prone to or more, you know, vulnerable to mm -hmm. sexual assault, sexual harassment, um, or even if they're not, just in general. Like yeah, what, just in general. <laughs> um, <laughs> what sort of tactics do you think are, are most useful for people to um, protect themselves and their friends and sort of just be cognizant of their surroundings? Yeah. Well... A couple of things, and we, we weave this into bystander education as well, is that bystander is, is about kind of looking for high-risk types of behaviors in the environment and paying attention to that, which can be difficult, particularly in social environments where there's alcohol and people don't know each other, those kinds of things. But then we also talk about good buddy system skills, you know, that really that that is our that is one of our best defenses is that making a commitment to people that when when people are going out that they have a commitment to look out for each other um, even if things kind of get messy or go awry or people are annoyed or mad at each other is to have a commitment beforehand to not leave each other behind stick together if the plan is falling apart or changing and someone's going to peel off and you know go that that the group come back together and make that decision you know so those kinds of commitments they sound a little silly <laughs> students talk about how they do that to some extent already in general you know people have a sense of that but oftentimes they think the commitment is there and then it's not there and then they end up relying on people they just met at a social event or people they don't really know um, we have a in our data we had a slightly higher rate Know, overall, people talk nationally that the vast majority of sexual assault is perpetrated by someone who's known to the victim. And that is generally quite true. And it's about 60 plus percent in our data set. But then we have this category of about 30 percent of people who said it was someone that they didn't know previously, not an acquaintance, friend, date, friend of a friend. It was something, someone that they, another student, but it was someone they just met at that social event you know party those kinds of things so it's another challenge of so that's extended sense of trust you know like oh we're all CU students and we're you know all this party together so we're kind of looking out for each other and if my friends left me behind this nice student is willing to 
keep an eye on me and help me get home and things like that. And maybe that is a person who's trying to be helpful, and maybe it's someone who's trying to take advantage of someone in a vulnerable situation. It's really hard to tell. So really having those commitments. Don't, don't rely on other people to get your friend home. Don't extend that sense of trust until you really know people well enough to give them that trust. And um, that can be a hard mes- message to get across when the social environment is really focused on having fun, meeting friends, meeting, ma- making new friends. So, yeah. yeah. And um, just do you have any, I guess, last words, like about, <laughs> not a good way to put it, but yeah. about, um, about the red zone or about the OIEC or just about just anything that would be pertinent for, for people to know? Yeah, um, there's so much. We could be here yeah. all night. But <laughs> I, I think one of the things that I think is really important is just people, th- these are difficult topics, and just being able to open that up to say these are things we talk about. Um, these are things that we plan for um, we're, and, and ways to have some good understanding and skill to support friends in the environment. Um, you know, those th- these are important topics that we tend to as a society shy away from because they're complicated and they're messy and people have lots of strong feelings and there's a lot of impact in terms of how these issues has have affected people's lives and we can honor that and have open conversations about these kinds of things rather than pretend that they're not happening or hide from difficult subjects and so just that willingness to be open and and bring these conversations into all of our environments on the college campus is is super important so I appreciate that and I appreciate you all sort of thinking about these things Um, we know that when bad things happen students turn to other students first and so students need a lot of skill for navigating these issues not in just in terms of prevention but also responding to a friend that something bad happens so it is an important piece of our education of our young people you know outside of the academic arena but super important for people's lives yeah so that was Teresa Rowe uh, coordinator for the Office of Institutional Equity and Compliance thank you so much for being here yeah thanks I enjoyed it thanks um so now we are going to have a uh, a we're gonna play an interview that uh, our news correspondent John Bowie uh, conducted earlier this week with Sarah Fami she is the president of the United Government of Graduate Students or UGGS or UGS um, and she talked about the graduate task force on stipends and benefits so I'm gonna play that and that will be our show. Thank you so much for tuning in. Again, my name is Anna, and you are listening to News Underground on Radio 1190. All right, thank you for listening to News Underground tonight. Here I am joined with Sarah Fami, the president of the United Government of Graduate Students, and we're here to talk about the uh, stipend tax for task force that has recently released some of their recommendations for the university. Thank you for coming down. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So can you tell us a little more about what you um, do as the president? Yeah, so um, so the United Government of Graduate Students is the primary representative and advocate for graduate professional students on campus. Uh, we work very closely with the graduate school, but also with campus shared governance. So this includes CUSG, Boulder Faculty Assembly, Staff Council, and obviously the Chancellor and Provost. Uh, and then we also work off campus as well with within the National Association of Graduate and Professional Students, NAGPS. 
and the Colorado Federation of Graduate Students. Uh, so we work internally and externally advocating for graduate student issues. Interesting. What, uh, what does your work typically look like, um, kind of like on a day-to-day basis? On a day-to-day basis, we have a lot of meetings, um, anything from hosting listening sessions to listening to different graduate student concerns uh, to setting up agendas and hosting the assembly meeting, which happens every other week. Uh, we also have, we receive numerous emails about just complaints or initiatives that we need to take on. So this has been, anything in the past has been like parental leave, mental health care, dental insurance. Um, so yeah, we, we attend a lot of meetings and we write up a lot of reports, just like this one over here, the Compensations and Benefits Task Report. Um, and we try and and be the representatives of graduate students in front of the administration. And so. I understand that some of the uh, issues you brought back there, uh, dental care, maternal leave, are those part of the recommendations that have been released recently? Yes, yeah, so um, it's we had to kind of narrow down the scope of what we were looking at are the Compensations and Benefits Task Force. So obviously United Government of Graduate Students represents all graduate and professional students, but for this specific task force uh, that we worked on with the Graduate School and the Office of Budget and Fiscal Planning, we had to focus, we had to narrow it down to just graduate students on appointments specifically. Um, and the reason for that was that we wanted to kind of address some very pertinent recommendations and priorities for our constituents, but also try and do that in a way that it can be implemented quickly. Um, and by quickly, I mean that nothing happens uh, due to just fiscal planning of the academic year until like a year in advance. So um, so quickly in, in terms with the university is very different of what we would think about it on a day-to-day basis. Um, but yeah, we have addressed dental health care, um, mental health care as well for graduate students, which are two of the biggest health care issues that we're currently dealing with. Um, other issues, you mentioned parental leave, that is one of the things that we addressed was important, uh, as an important priority, but it went beyond the scope of the Compensation Benefits Task Force. Um, so parental leave and then affordable housing and establishing workload norms are three of the things that we acknowledge are very, very important, uh, but they couldn't fit into this task force report. So we are still working on all of these initiatives just separately from the report. Uh, if if this is, um, what do you feel are some of the most important parts of these recommendations? Which recommendations do you feel like are kind of central to uh, the report? Do you feel like there's any that are have a little more weight than others, or do you feel like they're all very kind of equal? Yeah, so we made, th- we identified three top priorities, uh, and this was after looking at all of like the internal CU Boulder data, but also making comparisons between our data and then our AAU, which is Association of American Universities peers, uh, and looking at our data in comparison of that. Um, the top three priorities that we identified were student graduate student fees, so whether that is reducing or uh, remission of graduate student fees. The second priority was healthcare, expanding services for healthcare, but also increasing the the amount of services and reducing the cost so that would encompass the mental health care and then the dental insurance as well um, and then the third thing that we identified the third top priority that we identified was graduate student stipends and looking at how we can 
increase the stipends uh, to make it more affordable for graduate students living in Boulder and to keep up with the cost of living in Boulder. Yeah, no, I've uh, read that uh, cost of living was one of the bigger issues in the report. There was a mention of how um, when it came to uh, bringing in um, the cost of having housing in Boulder, the stipends were about $4,000 below average. Um, as a graduate student, how do you feel, How and as the president, of course, how um, big of an effect do you feel like that has on graduate students with that kind of, um, that kind of uh, decrease, I suppose? Yeah. So housing is definitely a huge problem uh, for all graduate students. Um, we actually have a housing committee that is a part of that is one of the committees that is through the United Government of Graduate Students, uh, and the housing committee is dedicated purely to looking at affordable housing, on-campus housing options, off-campus housing options, looking at um, Boulder's rules and regulations about the number of occupants per house and all of that. Um, so I would definitely say that it's it's a huge issue, uh, and we are definitely addressing that. Within the report specifically, we do mention that even though we've got approximately 16%, like our um, teaching appointment stipends are approximately 16% above our AAU peers, when you look at um, housing rate, or like the cost of housing, in comparison to how much we're being paid, we're actually much below the average. And so... Um, we're definitely struggling with the amount of income that we're receiving versus the amount of how much it costs to live here. Um, some people would say, well, why don't you just pick up another job? Uh, some people, you know, as graduate students, our top priority is often research, but also teaching. Um, and many people can't work either off campus or they are not permitted to work outside of their research abilities or outside of their teaching appointments. Um, and there are multiple restrictions on whether it's international students or just graduate students who work in specific labs or whatnot. Do you feel like there's, that's a common misconception of um, others not understanding that you can't work outside of those things or that those restrictions exist? So it's not about, uh, like obviously, you're allowed to work you can you can you can work as whatever many hours as you want it's obviously different for international students uh but yeah i think a lot of people don't recognize that sometimes your professor or your uh uh pi or primary investigator or whatever might come in and be like well no you need to spend x amount of hours on research dedicated to this and so as a human being you only have so many hours to give and since we're focusing on research and teaching primarily, it's very difficult to be able to work in other places as well. I wasn't aware those uh, restrictions existed, but thank you for bringing a little bit of light to that. Yeah. Um, so that. We also, uh, there was also last um, school year and earlier this year, there was a protest on Farrand about those student fees mm -hmm. as well. That's another issue that's kind of pressing graduate students. Yeah. Absolutely. Fees have always been a problem. Uh, one of the things that we address in in the report is that there isn't a separate fi or a separate financial package for graduate students. So graduate students and undergraduate students are all lumped into the same uh, financial structure, but also within the same health insurance plan. And so whenever we're trying to think of reducing fees or changing fee packages or whatever, it's really difficult to just implement something for graduate students only without looking at the overall undergrad implications as well and so one of the recommendations that we make in the report is the potential to look at 
uh, creating a new financial package, a separate financial package. There was uh, mentions of a 100% fee waiver for some graduate students, correct? Uh, yes. So again, this is all. Uh, this was another one of the recommendations. We we tried providing several recommendations. So for every one of our priorities, we've got about two or three recommendations about potential ideas of how we can implement this, and then short term versus long term um, kind of plans. Uh, because we also do recognize that the administration will have a lot of very tough decisions and and a lot of work ahead of them in order to figure out how to reallocate this money or to just um, you know follow up with the recommendations that we have suge suggested um, so one of them was a remission of 100% remission of fees for graduate students on appointments and this would be anyone who is on a 20% or higher appointment we kind of provided two different options of either removing fees entirely or having um, having a staggered kind of based on how much your stipend is and how much your appointment is that is how much of your fees are also reduced um, so we've tried coming up with a couple of different scenarios in order to to try moving forward with this issue but yeah reducing fees is definitely a top priority for us and it uh, and there is some kind of financial pressure on the university correct I um, read in the daily camera article that was released the other day that um, let's see here uh, there have been concerns about funding the initiatives in part due to the reliance on research grants, which are usually decided years in advance. Is that um, what's uh, what's kind of like the UGGS stance on that? So we have um, graduate students on appointments are not all paid in the same way. So some people, some of us are on TA appointments or GPTI appointments. So these are the teaching ones. Some people are on uh, GAs, which are graduate assistants, and other people are on RAs, which are research assistants. And with the research assistant position specifically, that's where it comes out. Your funds come out of research grants. And so that depends on the different primary investigators or the different uh, professors that are involved with the research in initiatives, uh, but also what kind of grant they can secure. So some people are on these humongous NSF grants, um, which of course is determined on a national level. And so we don't have much access to that. Um, uh, yeah. So, and do you feel like there's a lot of pressure on the university as well? Um, with uh, do you feel like uh, you um, have seen a lot of pressure when it comes to funding? Do you feel like there's any concerns you have about funding? Uh, one of the things that we're looking at is that there isn't a centralized funding uh, process. So the graduate school is not in charge of allocating all of the the stipends and all of the. Um, how we get paid basically doesn't come directly from the graduate school it's divided up based on departments so different departments might be able to within like their budgets might be able to offer um, PhD students appointmentships other departments just because of their budgets might not be able to do the same thing uh, some might be like okay we can offer a 25% appointment if you teach one class or two classes versus other departments that will say we can offer a 50% appointment if you teach one class. So it really depends on, there's um, an inequity with with the funding that people are receiving, but also with the appointment levels that even if you just look at just PhD students on appointments um, within departments, and that's because the graduate school is not in control of, there's not a centralized model for funding. Um, so it is it's a very tricky situation it's um, uh, 
there is a lot of pressure on on administration but I will say that we're very thankful to have very supportive graduate school um, and very supportive staff that have always been listening to our recommendations and always been listening to um, the issues that we're coming up with um, it will just take time for us to figure out how we can acknowledge all of that uh, but we are trying to work on multiple different facets so for example through UGS specifically we're working on releasing a work norms survey just to get some data figuring out what uh, what does a 50% appointment mean in one apartment versus another how much you paid what is the work that's expected of you so um, and I guess that kind of also leads into, so you said that it is kind of like, um, there's no centralized model, so it's kind of out of the hands of the graduate school. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So I guess the next question I have is that while looking through some of the daily cameras recordings, it was mentioned that some students were concerned if the university was committed to implementing these initiatives. Do you, um, does UGGS have a stance on that? How do you uh, feel about that? Um, again, based on... Uh, based on the work that we have done so this computations benefits task force has been working since 2018 um, and based on on UGS's relationships with the graduate school and with other um, members of shared governance and with several members of, of the administration I I say that we are optimistic that because this has been well received and um, uh, Meeting has definitely taken it into consideration and is definitely moving forward with the plan. Um, what I can't speak to is when this will be implemented. We're hoping that we will start the conversation about it with the next fiscal year, um, but that is out of our hands at this point, so out of the task force's ability right now. Um, but I am optimistic that the that the administration will actually follow through and that they will be committed to to supporting us because again the graduate school has always been very supportive of us so hopefully good here that doesn't yeah. change <laughs> yeah don't want to make you speak um for like all graduates but i really appreciate you uh mm-hmm. like coming down here and telling us a bit of that um especially at the graduate school do you feel like there are any other issues that are kind of pressing the graduate school right now um, amid the uh, issue of this uh, task force and trying to make these recommendations on behalf of grad students? Uh, so are you speaking specifically to like fees and stipend, like more compensation issues or? Is there anything else that's kind of pressuring kind of like UGGS or is there any other pressures on grad students do you feel like? Because we did talk a little bit about how there were some things that were left out of the recommendations but I'm curious about kind of like how grad students are currently being affected. So one of the biggest issues uh, that we continuously receive complaints about right now is the dental health uh, and the dental health plan and access to that, but also just ability to to pay for it. Um, so that is that is one really pressing issue. And then the other one that you know we can't ever get away from is mental health. Um, mental health services are still not up to par with the amount of demand that is required from graduate school students um yeah it's a it's a very big issue that that impacts our population um and so that is we're seeing more and more demand for mental health services on campus and we're struggling to keep that balance um so that is something that we're really dedicated to and we're working on because the mental health and sanity and safety of our graduate students is of the utmost importance. 
Thank you. Here, I'm just gonna check. All right. Well, um, do you have anything else that you feel like um, listeners should know when it comes to the stipend tax force? Um, is there anything else that's kind of pressing to you feel, that you feel like uh, students um, ought to know or listeners ought to know that we haven't talked about yet? Um, just the, that, um, so we've released the report. Obviously, there is a lot of frustration with lack of immediate action, uh, but I would like to assure listeners that even though change might not come within the next week or the next month or the next semester, that change is happening, but it's happening slowly. And whether it's at the speed that we want it to or not, that is, uh, we're working towards that. We're trying to take different, like, little steps along the way to achieve the recommendations that we've put forth. Um, so, yeah, hopefully, specifically with stipends and with fees, we've we've had a lot of improvements in the past. We've alleviated a lot of... Um, fees in the past um, and we've also increased with the graduate school's help we've increased a lot of the stipends um, like there has been a 6.2% increase for the past two or three years um, so there are small there are tiny steps that are happening um, but we will continue fighting for that so it's, it sounds like quite the process but yeah, then, <laughs> yeah no, but um, I hope that uh, graduate students, you're, I hope you're recognized for all of your hard work. It sounds like you've been working at this for a long time, and we really appreciate you being able to come down and talk to us about it and tell us a lot more about this. Yeah, Thank you. thanks for having me. It's it's always a pleasure to talk about stipends and benefits, so yeah. thanks thanks for having us. Thank, yeah, thank you for coming down and helping us uh, inform our, ourselves and our listeners. It was really kind of an eye-opening talk about um, graduate students and kind of some of the pressures they face, so thank you. Yeah, thanks. Okay, so again, that was John Bowie uh, conducting an interview with Sarah Fami. She is the president of the United Government of Graduate Students, also known as UGGS, or UGS, if you feel so inclined. Um, and that is our show for today. If you would like to hear more, uh, you can. Next Monday, we will also have a show from 6 to 7 p.m. Uh, in fact, every Monday, we have a show from 6 to 7 p.m., as well as every Wednesday from 6 to 7 p.m. Uh, again, that was John Bowie. My name is Anna Haynes. I am, we are both uh, news correspondents for News Underground, which is what this show is. Um, and the station that you're currently listening to is called Radio 1190, if you were unsure. So, yeah, thank you so much for listening, and uh, we, hope to, we hope to see you again next week. Thanks. <laughs>